1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul was called to be an apostle, and God used him in ways none of us has ever been used. He was used in ways that not even the other apostles were used. He had experiences none of the other apostles ever had. On one occasion, he was caught up into heaven itself. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. Whether in the body, I cannot tell, or whether out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such an one caught up into the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth, how he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Paul was speaking in what our school teachers called third person, as if he was talking about somebody else. But most every Bible student has agreed that the man Paul knew was Paul. Paul was caught up into the very presence of God, but he will not allow himself to glory in it. Like most of us, Paul had a problem with pride, and he had to be constantly on guard against his own pride. And here in this passage, rather than boast, he talks about himself as if that person who was caught up into paradise was somebody else. There are those who are looking for a day when we will sit on thrones and reign as kings. It seems to be their greatest desire to tell other people what to do. But that verse says that God hath already made us kings and priests. Revelation chapter 1 verse 6, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. John says we're already kings and priests. We already have the authority and the opportunity to reign with him. But how? How do we reign with him? Paul said it, 1 Corinthians 9 27, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. We are to reign over our own bodies. We fight and war to keep our own inclinations and our own passions in check. If we reign over these bodies of ours, that's a full-time job. We won't have time to rule over anybody else and keep them in line. You and I are engaged in a warfare. Paul was forever talking about our experience as a war. 2 Corinthians 10 and 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Being engaged in a war, we're to wear the armor and carry the weapons of a warrior. Ephesians 6 and 11, put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, 
against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. That sounds like somebody who is suited up and ready to do battle. And you can be sure that the obedient Christian life is a life of battle. There are forces all around us that would bring us down. This world is not a friend to God, and it's not a friend to his people. James chapter 4, verse 4. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. There are enemies all around us, and there are battles to fight. But I'm not so concerned at this moment with those battles we have to fight with the enemies all around us as I am with that one great enemy that is within us. The fiercest battle any of us will ever fight is that daily battle with our own carnal nature. For every battle you will ever fight with enemies without, you will have a multitude of battles to fight with the enemy within. And I will wax so bold as to say that most of us spend far too much time trying to tame somebody else's carnal nature. We spend too much time trying to straighten out somebody else. Even in our preaching, we spend far too much time talking about what's wrong with somebody else's doctrine and not nearly enough time making sure that we're able to explain our own doctrine in a way that's edifying to our congregation. In our text, Paul is talking about the warfare he fought with himself. He says, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. If we spend the time we ought to spend fighting that battle, we'll not have a lot of time helping somebody fight his battle. There are some lessons you will learn from experience if you're paying attention. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord told us, Judge not, and you will not be judged. There are several lessons we can learn from that text. One is that people are going to judge you, for the most part, the way you judge other people. If you're harsh and judgmental, people will be harsh and judgmental with you. If you're kind and forgiving with other people, there's a good chance they'll be kind and forgiving with you. There's another lesson I've learned from that text, and I've learned it by observation more than any other way. I've noticed that any time somebody is especially judgmental about some weakness in a brother, it seems to happen that sooner or later, the person who is so judgmental will begin to develop the same trait he was so quick to condemn in his brother. And it generally comes on him so slowly and so quietly that he doesn't realize it's happened. 
I've seen that so many times. I've almost come to the conclusion that God deals in judgment with those who are so quick to criticize others by giving them over to the same faults. Now, am I saying that God is the reason you develop that fault? Not at all. God is the reason you did not develop that fault years ago. There is in every one of us the potential for every sin, and if God did not restrain us, we cannot imagine what vile conduct would have worked itself out in our conduct. Psalms 19 and 13. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. David assumes that the reason he's not guilty of those presumptuous sins is that God keeps him back. It's not necessary for God to incite us to sin if he refrains from keeping us back. Who can tell what we might do? Notice that in the verse before he says, who can understand his errors? Sometimes I hear somebody make this expression, if I know my own heart, let me tell you, you don't. That was David's expression, who can understand his errors? We would do well to keep that in mind when we get so judgmental with other people. God used Paul in ways that others never were. But the other side of the coin is that no matter how he was used, he had conflicts in his own life and conduct. Nobody else in his day persecuted the church the way he did. Acts 7 and 59. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this into their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Paul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul... He made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. It took somebody with a mighty high opinion of himself to do what Paul did to those Christians. But do you tell me that was before his Damascus Road experience? Of course it was. But being born again does not get rid of our old carnal nature and the spirit of pride that goes with it. The born-again person has a new spiritual nature, but he still has that old nature to contend with, and the two are constantly at war. We'll talk about how Paul was able to keep his pride in check and how he was able to rejoice in the ministry of those brethren who did not wish him well. So long as they preached Christ, that was all that mattered. We will see how that's borne out in his comments to the Philippian brethren. But before we get to that, I want to notice his frame of mind when he was first at Philippi. He and Silas had been beaten. They were locked up in the innermost prison. Acts chapter 16, verse 35. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the sergeants, saying, Let those men go. 
And the keeper of the prison told this saying to Paul, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said unto them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans, and have cast us into prison, and now do they thrust us out privily? Nay, verily, let them come themselves and fetch us out. Paul and Silas were no doubt still feeling the sting from the whipping that they had received the day before. Now they had received word that they were free to go. But Paul would not leave until the authorities came and apologized. That took some kind of pride to demand an apology at a time like that. We'll see later that he learned to deal with his pride better than he did that day. But on that day, he did not do so well. It's our duty to deal with our pride, and some days we'll do better than others. But we will have to deal with it until the day we die. Sylvester Hassel wrote a church history which has been a standard with our people for over a hundred years. In most instances, Hassel was one of the soundest of all writers, but sometimes even Hassel got it wrong. Hassel wrote, quote, The church of the first century is the pattern for the church in every day and age. To the extent any church is like the church of the first century, that church is in the right. And to the extent any church is different from the church of the first century, that church is in the wrong. That sounded so good. I quoted it any number of times. I thought I had it right. But then I realized there were a lot of things in the church of the first century that we don't need in our churches today. Paul was the most prolific of the apostles, and most of what he wrote was for the purpose of correcting things he found wrong in those first century churches. He wrote the book of Galatians to correct false doctrines that had made their way into those churches. He corrected several things that were wrong in the church at Corinth. John found things wrong in all but one of the churches of Asia. We're to follow those churches in the things they got right. But we're to avoid those things they got wrong. Well, how are we to know the difference? We're to avoid those things about which Paul and the other apostles corrected them. If Paul said they ought not to do something, we ought not to do it. Paul gives us the proper rule. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Be ye followers of me, even as I am of Christ. Those early Christians made mistakes, but when Paul wrote the things he wrote under the inspiration of God's Spirit, he did not make any mistakes. God would not allow him to make a mistake. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The scriptures are God-breathed, God-inspired. They tell us everything we need to know and do religiously. We are only to follow those early Christians when they did what they were commanded to do. Paul instructs us to follow him, that is, to follow his instructions. But notice that he doesn't stop there. He says, Be ye followers of me, even as I am of Christ. 
The instructions Paul gives us by Paul are perfect. But Paul was not perfect. He made mistakes in his own life. He made a mistake when he became so upset with Barnabas, when Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with him on their next trip. Mark had, Acts 13 and 13, turned back from them at Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. Later, we learn that Paul wanted nothing to do with John Mark. Acts 15 and verse 36. And some days after, Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought not good to take him with them who departed from them in Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them, they departed one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed into Cyprus. Verse 40, And Paul took Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren under the grace of God. That has always struck me as one of the saddest scenes in the Bible. Barnabas was the best friend Paul ever had. He stood up for Paul when nobody would. After Paul's experience on Damascus Road, Paul returned to Jerusalem, and Acts 9 and 20, he essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. And why should they not be afraid of him? The last they heard of him, he was arresting Christians and having them put in prison and beaten and sometimes put to death. Why should they not think this was just a ploy to search out Christians and do them harm? Acts 9 and 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way, and that he had spoken boldly at Damascus in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 28, And he was with them, coming in and going out at Jerusalem. That took some nerve on the part of Barnabas. What if it turned out that Paul really was an imposter? Barnabas was putting everything on the line for Paul. When the disciples learned that the Jews were planning to kill Paul, they sent him forth to Damascus for his own safety. But they're bound to have had their own welfare in mind as well. As long as Paul was in Jerusalem, they were also in danger. They must have been relieved when Paul left. As much as the Jewish hierarchy hated the disciples, they did not hate him nearly as much as they hated Paul. To the Jewish hierarchy, Paul was a traitor. They had put so much trust in him. They expected him to put an end to these Christians. Then they heard that he was preaching with the disciples. It's hard for us to imagine their rage, and as long as he was in Judea, anybody who got too close to him placed himself in danger. The other disciples must have sighed with relief when Paul left. Then, in chapter 11, the disciples at Jerusalem heard about believers at Antioch, and they sent Barnabas to check it out. Now notice how it reads. Acts 11, verse 22, And they sent 
forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch. Notice, they did not say that he should go to Antioch. They said he should go as far as Antioch. That expression, as far as, seems to be more than a suggestion that he not go any farther. They knew that the last they heard of Paul, he was on his way to Tarsus, and that was farther than Antioch. Barnabas did all he was appointed to do, and then he did more. Verse 25, then departed Barnabas to Tarsus. This is after he's been to Antioch. For to seek Saul. Verse 26, and when he found him, he brought him unto Antioch. We're told that Paul essayed to join himself to the disciples at Jerusalem. We're not told whether he was allowed to place his membership in the church at Jerusalem or not. We're only told that he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. But whether he was actually a member of the church at Jerusalem or not, uh, he did succeed in placing his membership in the church at Antioch. Notice, we read in the 13th chapter that he and Barnabas were in the church at Antioch. Acts 13 and 1. They were not just at the church, they were in the church. Their membership was there. Whether Paul was ever a member of the uh, Jerusalem church or not, they didn't ordain him. Paul and Barnabas were both ordained after they came to Antioch. I've said all of that to point out that Barnabas really was the best friend Paul ever had. But Paul allowed this dispute over John Mark to spoil that friendship. We never read of Paul and Barnabas ever working together again after that day. That's a sad thought to me. Again, Paul instructed us to follow him, but only so far as he followed the Lord. Perhaps Paul was following the Lord when he fell out with Barnabas over John Mark, but I don't think so. One more thought on that line. Either John Mark changed his way, or else he was a much better man than Paul thought he was. When Paul came to die, John Mark was one of the few who stayed with him to the very end. Second Timothy 4 and 11, Take Mark and bring him with me, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. That was just four verses after Paul had said, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. Second Timothy 4 and 6, Paul was convinced that he was at the end of his way, and he wanted Mark to come to him. This man that he wanted nothing to do with, Paul wanted to be with him when he died. He was sure that Mark was profitable. That's not the way he talked in the passage we read just a moment ago. Mark did come to him twice. Paul lists Mark as one of those who were with him to the very last. That's a beautiful sight to me, to see this younger preacher staying with the old preacher who had at one point so totally rejected him that he wanted nothing to do with him. We're instructed to follow Paul, but we're not to follow any man unless he's following the Lord. Paul did have a battle to fight with his own carnal pride, but in spite of his sometimes failures, he triumphed in that battle as few people ever did. I want to turn to his letter to the Philippians, 
for an example of Paul's amazing triumph in keeping his pride in check. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. But I would have you to understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. Far from grieving about the way he had been treated, Paul was sure that his experiences had actually helped to further the gospel. If his patience in suffering would encourage the brethren, he was glad to suffer. How often have we discovered that the adversary's attacks only gave us more courage and more resolve for the next challenge? Resistance can be a benefit. Athletes pay big money for exercise machines. It's the purpose of those machines to provide resistance. They provide the resistance necessary for the athlete to build up his strength. And the more he uses the machine, the more he increases the resistance. Sometimes those who resist you the most do the same thing that the exercise machine does. They provide the resistance that increases your strength for the next battle. In that way, sometimes our worst enemy does for you what your friends would never consider doing. If you can look at your adversary in that way, you can realize that the greatest obstacle can be a benefit. Verse 13, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in the palace and in all other places. Even Paul's captors were impressed with his patience in suffering and his faithfulness to the very calling that landed him in prison. Not even his bonds could keep him from preaching. Wherever he was and whatever his circumstances might be, Paul would preach to somebody. If he could not preach to anybody else, he would preach to the men who guarded him. He had a captive audience. The guards could not leave. Whether they wanted to hear it or not, Paul would talk about those things that were dear to his heart. And you can be sure that those guards talked about Paul. Some talked because they enjoyed listening to him. And some talked about how he wouldn't shut up. But one way or the other, they talked about him. So that, quote, his bonds in Christ were manifest in all the palace and in all other places. <laughs> Allow me to quote the entire passage, and then we'll come back and look at Paul's assessment of the situation. What he says may surprise you. Philippians 1 and 12. But I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached and died therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Those soldiers 
who were appointed to guard Paul were not rank-and-file soldiers, not all of them anyway. Sometimes it was centurions who guarded him. A centurion generally had a hundred soldiers under him. They were powerful and influential people, and sometimes they developed a fondness for Paul. On one occasion we read, And the soldiers' counsel was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim out and escape. But the centurion, willing to save Paul, kept them from their purpose. These were influential men, and when they went away and talked favorably about Paul and the things he talked about, you can be sure that there were those who listened. We have no way of knowing how long the guards' shifts were. But Paul was constantly under guard, and no sooner than one shift was over than other guards came on duty. No doubt, many of them wanted to sh him to shut up, and others were glad to hear what he had to say. You cannot gather that many people together without finding a few truly heaven-born souls among them, and with the passion Paul had for the gospel, you can be sure that from time to time their souls were stirred. Their shifts would end, they would go their way, and like the, those two men on Emmaus Road, they would say, Did not our heart burn within us? You cannot bind the Spirit, you cannot bind the gospel, and you cannot shut the preacher up when God stirs his soul to preach. This was not the first time Paul preached in prison. There was a time when he was shut up in the prison in Philippi. They had put him in the innermost prison and made his feet fast in the stocks. If ever man was able to bind the preacher, quench the spirit, it was then. He was locked in the bowels of that Philippian dungeon. But, Acts 16.25, at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. At midnight, it's bound to have been dark in the innermost prison. But Paul and Silas sang and prayed anyway, and the prisoners heard them. Their audience was invisible to them, but not to God and not to his spirit. Before the night was over, they had baptized an entire household. Their backs are bound to have been sore from the beating they had just received. But what a meeting that must have been. At the time of our text, Paul was under arrest in Rome. But the Romans constantly sent him new guards to watch him. They were forever sending him a new audience. It was a small audience. Perhaps it was sometimes an audience of one, but it was an audience. I want to shift gears, and this is the point that I've been leading up to. We're told that the brethren in the Lord waxed confident by Paul's bonds, and that made them more bold to speak the word without fear. Verse 14, And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. No doubt, some of the brethren were encouraged by Paul's courageous example. They received strength from his strength, but others waxed confident from his imprisonment for another reason. Verse 15, Some, indeed, preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. 
those are serious comments to make about brethren in the Lord. He says some of them were contentious. They were striving. They were envious. And he goes on to say they, that they were not sincere. That is, they did not really believe everything they said. Now, we should not get the idea that the men he's talking about were insincere in the things they said about the Lord. Not at all. They were sincere enough in what they said about the Lord. But they were not always sincere in the things they said about Paul. Paul had some very dedicated enemies, both in the church and on the outside. There were brethren in the church who had no use for Paul. Some of them remembered the way he had persecuted the church, and they just wouldn't let it go. Some of them doubted he really was a believer, and they were not going to be persuaded. And why should he not have enemies in the church? Those people were as human as any of us. Think of the way Paul had persecuted the church, the way he had some of them arrested and beaten, and sometimes when they were on trial for their lives, he gave his testimony against them. Acts chapter 22, verse 4, And I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. Chapter 26, verse 9, Verily I thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 10, Which things I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. Put yourself in the place of these Jerusalem Christians. Suppose somebody in your family had been arrested and dragged off to prison for preaching the gospel. Suppose when he finally got out, he showed you his back, all crisscrossed with long scars from his beating. Suppose he told you how Paul had given the testimony that had him arrested and beaten. Suppose a dear friend of yours had been put to death based on Paul's testimony. Do you think Paul could have ever gained your confidence? I like to think I'm compassionate and forgiving. I would like to think that I would have been as forgiving of Paul as Barnabas was. But I'm not sure that would have been the case. I'm not sure that, that I would ever have had any use for Paul. I'm not sure that I would ever have trusted him. The disciples at Jerusalem 9 and 26, they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. For all I know, I might have been like those who were afraid of Paul. These were brethren in the Lord he was talking about when he said they were contentious and striving and insincere. These brethren in the Lord were jealous of Paul, and they were glad for him to be in prison. So long as he was in prison, he wouldn't bother them. It was in that way these brethren waxed confident by his bonds. He was in prison, and that's where they thought he needed to be. Were there ministers in that day who could think that way? Of course there were. We should never get the idea that those preachers were porcelain saints. They were sinners just like the rest of us, and they could be just as petty, just as contentious, sometimes just as mean-spirited as any of us are in our day. It was in that way they were insincere. 
They had no use for Paul, and they did not intend to be fair with him. And it's right here that we discover Paul's triumph. Earlier, we find Paul being judgmental and short-tempered. He had no patience with John Mark. But here, he manifests all the patience you could expect from any man. Paul was as human and as frail as any of us. And of course, he would have liked for everybody to have appreciated him and to have spoken well of him. But he had learned that was never going to be the case. That was not the important thing. The important thing was that Christ was preached. Verse 18, What then notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Some of his brethren were never going to speak well of him, but Paul had learned to live with that. But the important thing was that he spoke well of Christ. Christ was preached, and for that, Paul rejoiced and thanked God. We should every one of us realize that we're never going to be everybody's favorite. Sometimes there will be those who do not appreciate us. Sometimes they recognize some fault in us that others don't see. The fact that others do not see that fault does not mean that the fault is not real. Some have not picked up on our faults the way others have. If you do not think that you have faults that would disqualify you in the minds of some good and honest people, you're just not being honest with yourself. We all have serious flaws. Sometimes there will be those who do not approve of you because others have stirred them up against you. On one occasion, we read that the Jews had stirred up the chief men of the city and devout and honorable women against Paul. These people were devout and honorable, but they opposed Paul. In fact, the fact that somebody will not treat you fairly does not mean that they're consciously trying to be unfair. They may think they see a fault that's not there. And again, they may see a fault you do not realize they have. David taught us to pray to understand our own secret sins. Sins of our own that not even we understand. Sometimes our friends understand us better than we think they do. Perhaps better than we do. Sometimes our friends can be more objective about us than we can be uh, about ourselves. How very much we could learn about ourselves. If we could get inside the minds of our friends and listen to them when they think about us, we would likely be surprised in what we think learn about ourselves. Psalms 19 and 12. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. David is praying for the ability to understand himself. There is none of us that really understands himself. Jeremiah 17 and 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Our heart can hide our own motives even from ourselves. Our heart can convince us that we have the purest motives when our motives are not at all honorable. Ask yourself, what opinion would your friends have of you 
if they knew everything you know about yourself. I remember when I was a little boy, I heard a preacher say, my life is an open book. I'd be glad for my life to be portrayed like a movie on this wall. I was about 11 years old at the time, and I remember thinking, come on now, preacher. I've not been around near as long as you have, and I wouldn't want everybody uh, that I've ever done spread out for everybody to see. I want to say that again. When you're all put out, because not everybody is giving you the credit you would like to have, think about it. What kind of credit would they give if they knew as much about you as you know about yourself? Let me end where I started. Paul had always had a problem with pride, but he had finally reached that point where he could tolerate the opposition of those who are contentious and striving and insincere in their opposition to him, if only they were honest and sincere in preaching Christ. The gospel of the Lord Jesus meant more to Paul than life itself. He was willing to suffer all things so long as our Lord was magnified. Once, Paul's friends begged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. He had been warned by the prophet Agabus of the great danger that awaited him at Jerusalem, but it didn't matter, Acts 21 and 10. And as we tarried there many days, there came from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus, took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Verse 13, Then Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. To Paul, the gospel was all that mattered. He was willing to suffer everything else, even death, so long as Christ was preached. Let others in the church cast out his name as evil, if they think they must. But let them preach Christ and Paul can rejoice. Paul had finally, for the moment anyway, triumphed over that carnal pride that had tormented him all his life. The battle is never over, not so long as we're in this flesh. But for the moment, he was winning the battle. If there was hope for a sinner like Paul, perhaps there is hope for a sinner like me. Amen.